Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. I've been lighting the Advent wreath, and we're going to light all. We're going to write four of the five candles tonight, all except for the middle one tonight. And as we lighted the candles, we've been talking about various attributes of God. And when we light the candles, we'll remind you what those were. But tonight, we're reflecting on power. What can you really say about power as an attribute of God? It it feels sort of distant. I think it feels sort of like. The, it's certainly not a cozy sort of attribute of God. Um, and it's kind of hard, I think, to think about what to say. You know, we call it omnipotence. And we think of this idea of being without restraints on your power, able to do absolutely anything at all. And, of course, that's all true. That is, that is true, and there's a lot of scriptures on this. There's no question that God is, according to scripture, omnipotent, completely 100% powerful, the most powerful being in the universe, infinitely powerful, without any restraints on what he's able to do. What's interesting, though, Scripture talks about it, but it seems that, and this makes more sense as you think about it, not surprisingly, God seems more inclined to demonstrate his power than to speak about it. Because what can you do, what can you say about your power? But you can demonstrate it. We have all these examples in Scripture from the plagues of Egypt to the battles of the Israelites to the miracles of Jesus and all sorts of things around and in between all those stories as well. But there's also a problem in each of these cases, that these displays cannot convince anyone of the the infinite nature of God's power, right? Because each act that you see, your next question is, but is the power more than that? Does it go farther than that? The only way we could be convinced by demonstration of infinite power would be to have infinite demonstrations over the course of eternity. And I suppose you can argue that is what we will get, (laughs) but we certainly won't get all that at this moment, right today. And in fact, Jesus himself points out that no sign, no demonstration of power will ever be enough to someone who doesn't really want to believe in their infinite impotence in the contrast of the face of God's omnipotence. Uh, If you're interested, by the way, C.S. Lewis has some really, I think, useful and important insights about God's omnipotence in a book called The Problem of Pain. That might not be where you'd expect him to talk about power, but he does. And he has said some really fascinating things, which I won't repeat here. Tonight, I really just want to focus on two things in our brief time. As we get ready to light the candle, I want to focus on a question that comes up when we talk about power. And I want to focus on the contrast or the otherness of God in his power. The question is the one that God's omnipotence always, always prompts when we connect it with his love. And it's that question, basically the root of it is the question of why suffering exists at all. If God actually both cares and is infinite in power, infinitely creative in his intelligence, why couldn't he come up with a world where suffering is completely unnecessary? And that is not a meaningless question. It's not a shallow question. It's not a question that you just dismiss out of hand. In fact, it's a question that scripture acknowledges. It's a question that most of the writers of scripture wrestle with themselves. They ask that question themselves. It's true, they ask it from the standpoint of believing that God is infinitely power and infinitely creative and infinitely loving. And it's because they believe those things that they wrestle with that question of why does suffering have to exist at all? Sometimes the question is selfish, like why must I suffer? 
And sometimes the question is compassionate, like, why must they suffer? And Scripture doesn't ignore the question, and unfortunately, perhaps for us, Scripture also doesn't ever fully answer the question. There are partial answers given in Scripture, which, again, C.S. Lewis touches upon, and as you search Scripture, you'll find them. These partial answers, I think, are intended and mostly successful at giving us a sense of hope that God knows what he's doing, even when we don't have the full answer as to why. But it appears that Scripture, that that's part of the point of Scripture, that to answer this question, it simply wants us to know that God knows what he's doing more than it can completely resolve the difficulty for us. And I think that's part of the key. See, some religions deny suffering. They simply paint it instead as an illusion, or they blame it only on ourselves, saying all of it is of our own making, that we can overcome our suffering by being smarter or more enlightened. But Christianity acknowledges suffering, and Christianity acknowledges at Christmas that even the perfectly holy God experienced suffering, and through no fault of his own. So it's not an illusion, according to Scripture, and it's not something that we blame on the victim only. So we wonder why suffering is necessary. And Scripture not only affirms that it exists and affirms the question of why it's necessary, but Scripture goes one step further and says, for some reason, it is necessary. If it were not, you're correct. God could have simply made it not happen. But the thing that Scripture wants us to remember is the fact that we can't understand why a loving, omnipotent God would allow suffering doesn't mean that there is no answer. The fact that I don't understand quantum physics or advanced mathematics doesn't mean that there is no quantum physics or advanced mathematics. It's fair, probably even wise and compassionate, to ask the question, but it's also fair and probably wise to acknowledge that the answer is simply too complex for us to grasp. After all, we're talking about the nature of the universe and a holy God, a holy God who is by definition not easily understood. So I just want to acknowledge the question is there and acknowledge that scripture acknowledges the question, but also acknowledge that perhaps there is just no way for God to explain it to us. So let's leave that where it is and let's talk about how a holy God is different in his power. What is the contrast? There are some big classic demonstrations of what we might think of as God's power in Scripture. There's big storms, and there's the plagues of Egypt, and there's the battles of Israel, and there's, and there's the miracles of Jesus. And there's these big moments where we think of a, a God of the universe like a, a genie who has omnipotent power. Those exist, but what's interesting is that Scripture makes clear that God actually sees power very differently than we do. He not infrequently calls things powerful that we call weak. And he calls things weak that we think of as powerful. There is a disconnect in how we understand power according to the way God understands it. You think of our images in movies. Think of what it means for, for some being, you know, Thanos or, or somebody else who has complete power. And those raw demonstrations of violence and control are what we tend to think of. Somebody who uses their power to prevent anybody else from doing anything in opposition to their plans. Somebody uses their power to enrich themselves at the expense of other people. And you can find demonstrations of God's raw power and even violence in Scripture, but where God's otherness shows through isn't there. Where the power of God in Scripture shows through as being holy and different and other than ours 
is then his tendency to utilize power not to enrich himself, but to enrich others. There's an interesting uh, psalm where David, King David says of God, he talks about God's mighty arm and the strength of his sword and all his power. And then right in the middle of that passage, David says, it is your gentleness that makes me great. Or it's actually an idiom. It says in, in literal translation, it says, you stoop down to lift me up. But the way that's understood is to say your gentleness. That's what your stooping down is. And this is an interesting picture of God's power. And it's interesting particularly because Scripture seems to remind us frequently that gentleness itself is a mark of power to such an extent that you can argue only the most powerful being in the universe can also be the most gentle. And if you think about it, that's exactly what gentleness is. If you have somebody who has no power and they are so-called gentle with you, it's not gentleness, they have no choice. They're just weak. But we call it gentleness when someone who has the power to harm or the power to dominate or the power to oppress chooses instead not to do that and treats that person gently, that's where gentleness exists. It exists not among the weak, but among the strong. And the more infinitely powerful, the infinitely powerful God, who could simply think a thought and have us all be wiped out, exhibits an infinite gentleness every day in his response to us. And scripture tells us the difference, for example, between meekness and weakness isn't in attitude, but it's in how the power of the one using it is using it. Christmas reminds us in this bizarre look at how God thinks of power, Christmas reminds us of the incredible transcendent mammoth power it would take for a transcendent God, a God outside of space and time, a God who created space and time. The amount of power it would take for a God of that power to actually be able to contain all that power in the smallest and most vulnerable moment of a human's life as the baby. God could have come as a 35-year-old. <laughs> he could have come at whatever the prime of life was in those days. He could have come as a king. He could have come as a soldier. He could have come in all sorts of ways which would reflect power to us. And the truth is, we're told he will come in many of these ways in the future, and the expectation was he would come that way then. But he didn't. He took all his power and he squeezed it into the most vulnerable, vulnerable picture that we have. And right away it becomes a challenge to us by its strangeness and otherness. To even understand what it means for God to be a baby leads immediately to questions, to the recognition of our limitations of understanding power in God's mind. We struggle to understand even the most basic questions. I do. What did baby Jesus know about the universe? If you say nothing, how can that be? If you say everything, how can that be? What could he do as a baby? If you say everything, how could that be? If you say nothing, how could that be? How is it possible for an all-knowing, all-powerful God to grow, as scripture says, in wisdom and stature? How can such a thing even be? I think it's true, and I think we miss it because we don't understand God's concept of power, but I think it's good to be challenged and to remember that at Christmas we are reminded that God's greatest display of power might be in his ability to transcend his own infinite nature, to walk and even suffer among the finite. 
And his greatest display of love may be that he chose to do that. So we're going to light the, uh, the last candle tonight. Most churches believe in the value of small groups and a focus church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.